If you will, open up uh, a Bible in the pew in front of you, or if you brought a Bible to uh, Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the pew Bible, you can find it on page 980, and you'll want to uh, hold it open so you can follow along with us. This is uh, Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Uh, He's writing it from jail, most likely in Rome writing to a church that he loves, a church that has partnered with him in the gospel, a church uh, that he um, dearly misses and is uh, sad to be away from. So let's stand as we read Paul's message to the church in Philippi. Starting in chapter one, verse one. Paul and Timothy... Servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the, in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So as many of you know, um, I kind of began uh, my work doing ministry as a college student, um, well, even before that, uh, I first met the Lord uh, through Young Life, which is um, Paul, our head pastor, was the director of Young Life when I was in high school. And then when I went on to college and I volunteered uh, doing Young Life in in Chapel Hill. And a friend of mine, um, when I was first getting into ministry, gave me this picture that that is a beautiful picture of what grace is. He said, when you're working with students and you're discipling them, you're you're sharing the gospel with them, sometimes you have to believe in what God is making of them before they can even see it themselves. Sometimes, and I love this picture, sometimes you need to take the crown and put it on their heads, even if it doesn't fit yet, even if it's kind of, you know, hanging a little awkwardly. Put the crown on their head, keep it there, and let them grow into it. That picture captures what we do with leaders at Christ Community Church. The heart of this church is that we would see someone that isn't yet who they will be and give them a seat at the table and invest in them and develop them. That's what we do with the maps. Um, That's what we do with volunteers at every level of our ministry. And and that's what this church has done for me. Uh, When I came to this church, uh, I was right out of college. I was... 2006, I was living with Paul and Nancy Phillips, and uh, Morgan and Zach were still in school at that point. 
I was working uh, with John Gale, uh, who some of you remember from way back in the day. Uh, he was the Young Life director at the time, and I was working under him. And really, my, the- my whole theological education, the-, the-, the reason I'm in seminary right now is because of sitting at the dinner table talking with Paul, reading books that he gave me to read. You know, b- being in small groups, um, reading uh, Bible studies and really getting into the Bible and understanding what, what doctrine meant and how beautiful it was and how freeing it was to understand. Um, some of you in this room were in those Bible studies with me. Uh, Keith and, and Leon. Craig was in the last service. Greg, Anthony. It was amazing. Um, it was wonderful. Uh, the first times I ever learned how to lead people in singing at a church started here. And then y'all hired me to be the worship director. I mean, that was amazing. I started as a volunteer over at the gym at Temple Baptist. A little over five years ago, uh, our family left working with Young Life to, to come on staff here at the church. And I can tell you that I have grown more in the last five years being here than at any other point in my life. My wife would say, I am a much better man, a better husband, a better father, better neighbor, better follower of Jesus because of the investment and the prayers of people in this congregation. So if you're just visiting and you've never been here before, I'm so sorry if this feels like someone else's like college graduation, you know? Uh, But my hope isn't that I'll just talk about my own story the whole time. Really, I'm here to talk to you about Philippians uh, chapter one and to look at the ingredients of a pastor's gratefulness towards his congregation, the the ingredients that make up a pastor's joy when he thinks about his people. Because when I came to this church, I was just a guy who was excited to knock around and do some stuff in ministry, but I wasn't a pastor. I became a pastor because you all let me be your pastor. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, and so as I was thinking, I was thinking, well, what, what am I going to say to a church that basically raised me? When people have been asking me, uh, what's it going to be like to go um, leave to start with RUF and to start being ordained in the Presbyterian church? And what, what do you think? I mean, you, you're being sent out. Are you excited? And I'll go, nah. I mean, yeah. But this church is my family. So what do you say to your family? <laughs> Aside from thank you. Thank you. I think Philippians 1 is just about the best thank you that I could have thought um, to write, and um, I'm glad someone else wrote it already, and it's inspired. Uh, In Philippians 1, Paul is writing from prison, as we said, probably in Rome, and he's writing to a church that has been his biggest supporters in his ministry career. And not only that, Paul is at one of the kind of darkest and most challenging times in his ministry. But even though he's in the midst of all this difficulty, all this transition, all this trial, he's full of joy. He's full of gratitude. He's full of celebration. And as I studied this passage this week and I thought of how I've been praying for this church, how I would like you all to to pray for me, I've also been filled with joy, filled with gratitude. And I want you to invite you to kind of share in it with me. 
as we look at this passage, um, I want you to notice the three elements of a pastor's joy when he thinks about praying for his people. First, confidence. Second, expectation. And third, affection. Confidence, expectation, and affection. These are all wrapped up together in Paul's mind when he thinks about this church. And they're the ingredients not just of a pastor's joy, but if you are struggling in prayer, if you're struggling with gratitude, like some of us do from time to time, if you want to know the secret of joy and contentment in all kinds of circumstances, Paul's going to show you how to find that same joy. So we're going to look at these three elements in order. First, confidence, then expectation, and then finally, affection. So starting in verse 3, confidence. Look with me. Paul is beginning in verse 3 his prayers with gratitude. He's saying, I thank my God every time I think of you, every prayer I make. Paul is thanking God for this church who has been his partners in ministry. Now, remember, they've been the most generous, the most supportive, the most prayerful prayerful church. But while he's engaged in thanksgiving, he's not really focused on all the gifts that they've given him. Instead, he's focused on one great truth, the unshakableness of God's grip on his people. He's thankful for their gifts, but he sees beyond the gifts And to what the gifts reveal about the spiritual core of the church, the basis for his gratitude is confidence. It's assurance that God will hold on to his people until the very end of time, that he will hold them fast, that he will never leave them go, let them go. He will never, ever forsake them. He's confident, in a word, in God's ability and he's rejoicing because he, see, he understands that the good that has come from this church, the good that he sees in this church, the spiritual fruit that he sees, didn't come from him. It wasn't him. It was Christ in him that did it. It was God's work from beginning to end, and God always finishes what he starts. Look, the, the, the whole kind of first part of this is just one big run-on sentence if you look at it in the Greek. And it actually makes even more sense if you realize verse 6, there's not really supposed to be a period there. It's just kind of one, run-long, run, one, kind of, uh, one long run-on sentence. Um, and it kind of goes in, because of your partnership in the gospel from this day until now, being sure of this, maybe one of your translations says. Being sure of this, standing in this confidence that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's the foundation. That's the basis of his confidence, of his gratefulness, of his thankfulness, of his celebration. Some of you might remember how the church in Philippi started. Acts 16, we see that Paul was traveling with his new disciple, Timothy, and it wasn't even their idea to go into Philippi. They received a vision of a man from Macedonia. Macedonia is northern Greece, and that's where Philippi is. And so it was kind of God's idea to move them to Philippi. And when they get to Philippi, the first person they meet is this woman, Lydia, who's a dealer in purple cloth. So she was kind of a fashion mogul, you might say. So they meet this woman by the river, And Paul shares the message of the gospel with her. And listen to how Acts, to how Luke, the author of Acts, describes her response. Acts 16, 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Who started the church in Philippi? Who founded it? Whose work started it? 
Was it Paul? I mean, Paul was around. Paul was there. But Paul would look back and say, it was God's work. It was God's idea. He opened Lydia's eyes. He planted this church, but he used me. And so Paul was looking back, and because he's confident that God was the one who started it, that God was the one who had the idea to rescue these people, to open up their eyes, to start this church in Philippi, Paul knows that even if he's not present, even though he's far away, the church is going to be fine. Because even though they've lost Paul, they haven't lost the one thing that matters. They've got God. And more importantly, God's got them. Why is Paul so confident? I mean, not not just because of God's character, which is probably enough reason, but Paul gives, uh, on the human level, evidence for his confidence. So he kind of brings out this evidence to make the case for why, church, you're going to be okay. This is what he says. He looks at the fruit in their lives. He says, this is how I know God's really got you. This is how I know you're going to be okay. He looks at the spiritual fruit that's in their lives. Now, by the way, this is really important. The difference between gifts and fruit is all the difference in the world. There are a lot of churches that are really big on like spiritual gifts, and you can be gifted as all get out, but you can be a really immature Christian and be really, really gifted. And there's a lot of people who get involved in ministry as very immature people spiritually, but incredibly gifted. And that's how churches blow up. That's how things split. That's how people really do some damage. Is gifted, but unfruitful people. The thing that makes the difference in a ministry is not the gifts of the spirit, because God can give gifts to just about anyone. He made Balaam's donkey talk, right? Saul, as we know, prophesied. God can give gifts to anyone, but he gives the fruit of the spirit to people who he is making into Jesus's image, who really do have the spirit living in their hearts. So the, the sure foundation is on the fruit, not on the gifts. Now, Paul is looking at the fruit of this church and he's reasoning from the fruit to the root of their identity in Christ. Now, if you're like me, you might be horticulturally challenged uh, so, you know, so if I go outside and you showed me five different fruit trees and they were not in season, you know, if it was like November or something, I could not tell the difference between an apple tree, a cherry tree, a pear tree. I have no idea. But once those things get some fruit on them, I mean, I know the difference between a pear and an apple and a cherry somewhat, right? And so what Paul's doing is he's saying, I can tell what kind of church you are by the fruit that I see growing. And the fruit that I see gives me evidence that the Spirit of God really is there. So what's that fruit? I mean, in Galatians, he's going to list the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, truthfulness, maybe. I maybe messed up one. Spence, you probably know these. Probably memorized them. Anyways, Paul instead gives this one specific fruit that's really important. And it's this word that's kind of a special word that we use in the church. The fruit that Paul points to is fellowship. Now, fellowship, when the Bible talks about fellowship, they don't just mean kind of punch and cookies in the fellowship hall. Like sometimes we think of fellowship like, oh, how nice those Christians are having fellowship together. Fellowship, when the Bible speaks of it, this word koinonia means 
a life that's knit together in community. And not only that, it's a life that's knit together, not just kind of emotionally, not just socially, but it's a life that's knit together with other people who are on mission. The word koinonia isn't actually translated fellowship here. You look through, you're not going to see fellowship. What you will see in verse 5 and verse 7 is this word, partnership in the gospel. Verse 5, partakers with me of grace. Verse 7, partakers, partnership. It's the same word, koinonia. Paul's saying, we have a partnership together. We've stacked hands on something. That's why the fellowship of the ring you know, in those movies is called the fellowship of the ring. Because they're on mission together. They're going and doing something together. Fellowship, when the Bible speaks about it, has this kind of gritty, consequential weightiness to it. When you're in a fellowship with someone, you're going to get stuff done. So if you were going to use the word fellowship in this way, the fellowship hall would be more like a war room. I mean, it would be a place where you sit down and you really hash stuff out with people, where you plan and you dream and you uh, prepare and you launch new endeavors for the gospel. I mean, that, that's what a fellowship hall is. And that's kind of what we do too. And we also have potlucks. <laughs> so Paul is excited because this church has been fellowshipping with him. They've been his partners. They've really given of their time, their talent, their treasure. Uh, They've walked alongside him. They're knit together with him in heart and soul. A great picture of what this looks like, if you'll remember, is back in in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 14. You got Jonathan, the son of Saul, and he's with his armor bearer. Right? And there's these kind of Philistines that are up on the side of the hill. And so Jonathan looks at his armor bearer and he says, hey, let's go attack them. What do you think? I mean, it may be that the Lord will do something. Um, maybe the Lord will work for us. Nothing can stop the Lord from saving by many or by few. Let's go. Let's attack these guys. And his armor bearer, instead of doing what I would do, which is like, you're crazy. His armor bearer looks at him and he says, Jonathan, you do it, man. Do what is in your heart to do. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And of course, you just want to you just want to kiss that guy when he says it. Because that's the picture. That's the picture of partnership. That's the picture of real fellowship in the gospel. I am with you, heart and soul. Where you go, I go. I'm going with you. You're not going alone. And Paul looks at this church and he says, you have been with me in heart and in soul. That's how I know God has got you because it's not been easy. Paul's in prison, remember, and this church, when there was a famine in Jerusalem and and Paul was um, uh, doing a a collection for the church in Jerusalem, the church in Macedonia, the the church in Philippi, they gave more than churches from way wealthier towns. Paul says, when he writes the letter to the Romans, they gave out of their poverty. And their generosity overflowed. This was a really special church. And he's saying, I can see because of your devotion to the gospel from the first day until now, because you have stuck with me even when it got hard, I can tell that God is doing something special in you. So what bond kept them so locked together with him? What bond knit them together in partnership and fellowship? I mean, we've already said it. 
their partnership wasn't based on anything social. It wasn't based on kind of some mutual affinity. It was based in the gospel. It was based on the unchanging truth of God's revelation. Because they had stacked hands together on the same gospel message, because they had fellowship together in the gospel, in the truth, this message of a big, glorious God and his saving work, his one-way love moving out to a broken world to heal and save and restore, because they were committed to that story, they could go way far down the road together. Because they were committed to that true gospel and not some watered-down counterfeit gospel, they could have real partnership, real fellowship together in the truth. Paul's going to say later in the letter that, letter that not everyone that's preaching the gospel is preaching the gospel with right motives. Not everyone that's preaching the gospel is preaching a true gospel. Some are distorting the gospel. Some are watering down the gospel. And Paul's saying, no, you need to stick to the true message of the gospel. Remember that one gospel. Stand tight to it. Don't adjust it. Don't shave off the rough edges. Stay committed and firm and unified in the truth. Paul will say it, um, this message of the gospel in Ephesians. He'll say, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of your works. No one can boast. We are his workmanship. We've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the message of God's sovereign grace, his specific love where he opens up people's eyes. He calls them to believe in himself and he prepares good works for them to do. And what God does, what God starts, the works that God begins, he promises to bring to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's why Paul is so confident because he sees that glorious gospel message of a big God, of a secure salvation. And he's confident that God will not let them go. And I got to tell you, that message of the gospel, the beauty of grace, the, the perfection of the Bible, these were things that I, I didn't really know until I came to this church. I mean, I knew them, sure. And I kind of thought I believed in him, but, but I really learned about the beauty and the truth of the gospel while I've been here, sitting under Paul's preaching, being with y'all, reading the Bible, praying, worshiping, just sitting and listening to the songs that we sing. I mean, it's changed my heart. And if this is your first Sunday here, I mean, I'm so glad you're here. There's not a better place that you could be. <clears throat> and I think because of that commitment to the gospel, this church has what I would call an uncommon fellowship, an uncommon, a rare partnership. Not just the punch and cookies, not just the potlucks, although we have great potlucks. But there's a sense of teamwork here. There's a sense of partnership. The desire to see the gospel grow in our city. There's this generosity with people, with leaders. You know, when, when we walked into, into Paul's office and uh, Sean and I, told them that we are accepting this call to work for RUF and to, to pastor students on campus. Paul's first words were, I think that's so great. I'm so excited for you. This, this is, you have to go. You have to take this opportunity. It was that Jonathan and the armor bearer moment. He said, I'm with you. 
Uh, you know, I was sitting with a friend um, having lunch when Sean and I were, were praying about thinking about moving forward, working with RUF on campus. And, you know, I was sharing excitement and this kind of opportunity. I mean, there's 15,000 students at UNCW. I think there's 16,000 now. Uh, I mean, that's a lot. That's like a little city, right? And over 90% of them, we think, aren't involved in a local church or a ministry. I mean, that's a lot of people that need to know the gospel. And so we're going, man, this is really exciting. And it's kind of scary, too. So you're moving out of your comfort zone. And so I'm kind of looking. I don't know, maybe... Should, should we do it? What should we do? Should we take the next step? And I'm sitting across the table from my friend and he says, Sam, this is from God. You need to take the next step and we're going to support you. And then he names this really generous amount of money that he wanted to donate to RUF. And I just, I can't even tell you how that felt. I will tell you, actually, I started crying. And, and, and I thought, okay, maybe God is in this. Maybe God is going to be with me because he's with me. Sometimes you have to believe in something before someone can believe it themselves. Sometimes you have to put the crown on and then let someone grow into it. So that's what Paul is thankful for here in this passage, that deep sense of team, that partnership that's the sure evidence of something even better. Paul looks and he sees because of this fruit, he looks back and says, God is going to do something in them. God is committed to never lead them, leave them or forsake them. Remember what Jesus says in John 10, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Nobody can snatch them out of my hand. I hold on to them. I will hold them fast. But Paul doesn't stop there. He moves on from confident thanksgiving to prayerful expectation. He sees this great fruit in the church, but he isn't satisfied just to let the church coast all the way till Jesus comes back. So he prays very specifically, naming the good things he knows God wants to grow them in. So he kind of expectantly comes to God saying, all right, God, I know you want to grow them. I know that you want to sanctify them. So what do they still need so they can finish this race and keep the faith? So a pastor's joy as he prays for his church is rooted not just in confidence, but in expectation that God will continue to grow them. Like any good parent, Paul, as he looks at this church, is hoping for and he's asking for the very best for his children. And his priorities are helpful for us to notice, right? So if you're a parent, uh, what do you pray for for your children? Uh, What do you pray for for your family? What do you pray for for your friends? What do you pray for for this church if you pray, which I hope you do? for this church. Notice Paul doesn't pray that they'd be happy or physically healthy. He doesn't ask that they wouldn't ever experience opposition or persecution. He doesn't ask that God would make it easy for them, that they would, you know, give them every desire of their heart, you know, everything that they write on their dream board that they would achieve. He doesn't say that. What he does say in a word is he prays for their sanctification. That's the best possible thing that he could ask for. It's a powerful request. He prays for their sanctification. Look what he says in in verse 10, kind of the end of 10 and 11. He prays that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Not to their own glory, not to their own praise, but to the praise and glory of God. 
That's the end result that Paul's praying for. That's what he's expecting. Righteousness, holiness, sanctification. But he knows that they will need something to get there. So Paul asks God to give them what they need. Here's his gift list that he kind of, you know, writes out. This is his wish list. First thing, verse 9. To get to sanctification, he knows they're going to have a growing love that's rooted in the truth. Verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Notice he doesn't ask for love without knowledge, which is just kind of squishy and flimsy, or knowledge without love, which is accurate but abrasive and unkind. He asks for a certain kind of love, a discerning, a wise, a knowing love that's rooted in doctrine, rooted in truth. Knowledge, in Paul's mind, doesn't stifle love. It ensures its purity. It protects it, right? I I used this illustration uh, in Sunday school before, and it's a favorite illustration of mine. And since my wife is in the front row, I will use it again. I want to tell you about my wife. I love her. I love her blonde hair. I love her red pants. I love uh, the cape that she's wearing. I love, you know, so, so you're already laughing a little bit, right? Because if you're looking in the front row, you see she doesn't have blonde hair, she's not wearing a cape, and she's got white pants. So what did you just learn about my love <laughs> from my words? My love was false. My love was not according to knowledge. Love without knowledge isn't actually loving. If you claim to love God, but you don't accept what God says about himself in the Bible, if you don't accept God's self-revelation of who he is, if you claim to love your neighbor, but you don't accept God's revelation of what is your neighbor's good, what's actually good and helpful for your neighbor, if you claim to love, but you forsake knowledge, you're not actually loving. It's actually cruel. Love separated from knowledge is cruel and unjust. It's a fiction. And so Paul is saying, church, you cannot forsake knowledge. You cannot forsake truth in the name of love. And don't you try to pit them against each other because truth upholds love. Knowledge upholds love. Hold them together. Protect your love for God and your love for neighbor with the truth with knowledge, with wisdom, with discernment. And he knows if the church doesn't have this love, this growing, overflowing, abounding love, they won't be equipped to do what he asks for next. In verse 10, he asks that this church would not just have a growing love, but in order to be sanctified, they need to live with God-centered priorities. Listen to this, verse 10. Your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Paul wants this church to be devoted to what is the very best, to put their time and their talent, their treasure and their passion to what actually matters. He's looking at this church and he's saying, don't waste your time. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your passion on something that fades away. That's something that's just merely good. Devote yourselves to what's actually excellent. Paul knows, and we know, don't we? That there are countless decisions in life where it's not a matter of of deciding between right and wrong but of deciding between what's excellent and what's merely good. I mean, this is a problem, you know, if you ever talk to a young person, priorities, discernment, discerning from, you know, I've got a thousand different extracurricular options or paths that I could take or, you know, classes, what am I going to major in? 
and you go, there's a lot of good stuff, but don't let the good be the enemy of the best. Find the one thing that only you can do excellently. Devote yourself to what is truly excellent. Don't waste your time um, spending yourself on what's merely good. Paul says later in uh, chapter four, he says, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, I want you to think about these things and what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice those things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul is saying, you're gonna find the excellent things in the gospel. You're gonna find the excellent things by by coming back to my teaching, by coming back to God's word. That's what you're gonna find, what's good and true and beautiful. Because Christian, the good and the true and the beautiful are all wrapped up together. You'll never find something that's truly good that's not true and not beautiful. You'll never find something that's truly beautiful if it's not good and it's not true. And that's one of the lies of the culture that would separate the good and the true and the beautiful. And so Paul is saying, devote yourself to what is truly excellent. That's the path to righteousness. That's the path to success with God. That's the path to sanctification. Devoting yourself to what's really, really good. And, and I think this is a brilliant move on Paul's part because a lot of us, we have this kind of common wisdom that the way to holiness, the way to sanctification is to cut off desire. The enemy of sanctification, some say, is desire, bad desire. So they say, okay, just, just cut out all these desires for bad things. And then you'll be able to be holy and glorify God. But see, the problem with that, it's, is it's only half true. You can cut off desire for all kinds of unhelpful, unholy things, but then you're just left as a desireless person. You're left as kind of a vacuum. And the heart abhors a vacuum. The heart wants to love. The heart wants to desire. And so the trick of the Christian life, the secret to sanctification is not to cut off desire, but to desire the right things, to inflame yourself with holy desire, with good affections. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I think God thinks that our desires are not actually too strong. We're too weak. We're half-hearted creatures. We fool about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is actually being offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Church, do not be too easily pleased. Do not settle for what is merely good. Don't fool around with drinking sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered to you in the gospel. Paul stacks up um, in chapter three all these excellent things, all these things that the world would think are, are really remarkable. Um, ambition, uh, success, uh, knowledge, all these human achievements. And then after listing all these things that he's achieved, he says, all of that's garbage, Here's the one thing that matters, knowing Christ, being found in him, identifying with his sufferings, being made more like him, bearing fruit for his glory. That's the one thing that matters. Pursue that above all else. Don't be too easily pleased. Don't be distracted. Church, we have so many things competing for our attention today, do we not? Things that come across your mental screen, they come come across the, the physical screens in our lives. What do you give your clicks to? What do you give your time and your attention to? Does it last? Does it love you back? 
Does it move you towards the praise and glory of God? Does it satisfy? Are you too easily pleased? And finally, what, what do you need to pray for? What, what, what equipment do you need from God so you'll actually be able to discern between what's good or what's entertaining and what's actually excellent? What do you need to ask help with uh, from a friend, from someone in a community group? What do you need prayer for in order to be able to move toward what's, what's truly good, what's truly satisfying? Paul is praying with this expectation that the, the church will continue to grow. And he's pushing them and exhorting them towards more growth. And he's saying, I don't want you to just coast. I want you to abound more and more in love and fruitfulness and faithfulness. And that commitment to growth is something that I've been so impressed with since being at Christ Community Church. I mean, every Sunday I see men and women who have been following Jesus longer than I've been alive and have forgotten more about the Bible than I'll probably ever learn coming to church, coming to Sunday school, coming early with a pen, with a notebook, with a Bible to learn more, to be challenged, open, ready to hear, you know, a a young person like me uh, tell them something actually take it and think it might be valuable. I mean, that's amazing. This is a, a teachable, growing, uh, humble church. And it's, just, it's, it's wonderful. The Apostle Paul looks at this church, the church in Philippi, and he's confident that God's got them. He's praying expectantly that they'll continue to grow. But there's one last element in Paul's mindset when he looks at this church, and that's a deep and abiding sense of affection. Paul looks at these people and he says, I just love you guys. And as you look throughout the letter, you, I mean, you can see his love just kind of jumping off from every page. Uh, 4.1, he says, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, you are my beloved. But in this beginning section, Paul says something remarkable, and I don't want you to miss it. It's our final point. I don't want you to miss this. The affection that Paul has, it didn't come from Paul. This affection that Paul feels for the church, it comes from Jesus. Verse eight, God is my witness. Trust this, he's saying. He's saying, I'm swearing to you. God is my witness. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's saying, if you think I feel anything remotely good for you, if you feel any evidence of my love, that is a sliver off the love of God. That is a drop out of the ocean of God's affection for you. The only affection I have at all, Paul is saying, is because God has showed me what you look like to him and you, church, are his beloved. He's saying, church, do you understand the affection of Christ Jesus for you? Do you understand how God sees you? Now, how did he get this way? Well, it happens when you pray for people. So if you're ever... um, interested in staying angry at someone or, you know, not reconciling or just being bitter, here's how you do that. Don't ever pray for someone. Don't ever hold your bitterness or your anger up to the Lord and say, Lord, show me what this person is actually like in your eyes. Because if you do that, here's what's going to happen. You're going to start to love them. You're going to start to see them as God sees them. And your heart will be melted. You'll learn the secret of compassion You'll share in God's affection for them. That's what Paul has done. He's prayed for this people uh, and he's walked with them 
and God has given them a little glimpse of what they mean to him. And that's why Paul can say, I'm yearning for you, not with my own affection, but with the affection of Christ Jesus. I don't know if you've ever done that. I mean, this is one of the biggest gifts I've had being on staff here is to just pray through the church directory. And we do that a couple times a year as a staff. Uh, The elders pray for the people on their shepherding lists. Uh, And what happens when you pray for people by name is is you just lift them up to God. You start to go, man, I love that person. (laughs) Man, Lord, would you be with them in their struggle? Lord, there's stuff going on in their lives that I'm not even aware of. But Lord, would would you be with them? Would you be present with them? Would you help them? Would you love them? I would encourage you, if you haven't ever done that, uh, you know, download the, the church directory, uh, email Carly, ask her to print you out a copy. Um, but it's, it's a great practice to start. But that's not the application necessarily that I want to make. The application that I'd like us to make is not, do you see God's heart for someone else? Do you see God's heart for you? If you're a Christian, do you understand that if you are in Christ, you are the apple of God's eye? Church, you are the bride of Jesus Christ. He loves you. He dotes upon you. He has died for you. He is fighting to wash you. He he wants you to be presented before his throne, spotless, without blemish. He is committed to your sanctification. He loves you. Do you believe that? To not believe it is an insult to the, the cross of Christ. He died for you, not because you were so lovely or lovable, but he died to make you lovable. He died because he loves unworthy people. It's a one-way love, the gospel love. Uh, John Owen said this, the greatest sorrow and burden that you can lay upon the Father the greatest unkindness you can do to him is to not believe that he loves you. Church, do you believe that God loves you? Do you see that? Uh, One of the best books that I have ever read uh, is a book called Gilead. Uh, It's written by this woman, Marilyn Robinson. It's incredible. And in the book, uh, there's this man, John Ames, just like this 80-year-old preacher. He's a widower, And he's kind of in the twilight of his life. And then he meets this young woman who wanders into town. She's a homeless woman. She comes into his church. He baptizes her and they fall in love. And they come married and uh, they have a little boy. And at the end of his life, he's going, how, I've been so blessed. I mean, you just read the the, the book and, and it's written in his own words. So from his own perspective, he's just saying, God, you've blessed me with a family. You've blessed me with this woman. Oh, I love her. She's so delightful. And there's this one passage, Sean and I were reading it yesterday. We just couldn't, we can't do anything lately without just crying. But this passage in particular, he's talking about wanting to take a picture of his wife. And he's like, I got out the camera and I tried to take a picture of her. And she just covered her face. And she's like, I don't know why anyone would want to take a picture of me. And you kind of go, is she just being modest? What's the deal? Because he obviously loves her. And Marilyn Robinson did this remarkable thing where she wrote another book from the perspective of the wife. It's called Lila. And in the book, you hear Lila's story. She was abused as a child. Uh, she was a prostitute. Uh, she wandered into town. Uh, she had you know, no faith whatsoever. And then she got converted and she still you know, was unsure about what she believed and if she even mattered to God. And once you see her from her own eyes, you realize how remarkable the husband's perspective is. 
Because when you read it from his eyes, you think she's this, you know, incredible, uh, incredible woman. And she sees herself as, as, as worthless, really. Do you see yourself, church, the way the Father sees you? Do you see yourself with the eyes of your groom? He chose you. He loves you. He's promised never to leave you or forsake you. Do you believe that you are God's beloved? If you would believe it, you'd start to live like it. And that's the best thing that I could exhort you to do. Remember that God loves you and live like God loves you. Confidence, expectation, affection. That's what's living inside of a pastor's heart when he prays for his people. Now, I, I wanted to think of how to close this, and I really couldn't find a, a better way than to read the words of another guy, a much better pastor, um, John Newton. Uh, first time I ever heard about John Newton, uh, he wrote Amazing Grace and a bunch of other hymns. Uh, I, I first heard about him in one of Paul's sermon illustrations, but John Newton was more famous in his lifetime as a letter writer than as a hymn writer. He wrote over a thousand letters that were published and people kept them as like these family heirlooms. And what he would do is he would write letters to people just just helping them see the truth of God and figure out different circumstances in his life. And then at the very end of the letter, sometimes he'd have some room on the last page. And what he would do is he'd say, I'd like to just fill up the page for a second. And he'd just write things that were in his heart, just the the overflow of his heart for these people when he thought about the gospel. So these are kind of his prayers for his people. And this is what he prayed. This is what he wrote. I'm just going to fill up my page with John Newton's words. This is his closing benediction for us. Let me commend you and yours to the grace and care of our Lord Jesus. Those that dwell under the shadow of his wings shall be safe. In his service is perfect freedom. In his favor is life. Church, may his name be precious to your heart. The highest desire I can form for myself or my friends is that he may live in us, that we may live to him and for him and shine as lights in a dark world. To see him by faith as living, dying, rising, reigning, interceding, and governing for us, that will equip us with such views, with such motives and encouragements that it will enable us to endure any cross, to overcome all opposition, to withstand all temptation, and to run in the way of his commands with an enlarged heart. And then he says this, church, just a little while, he will put an end to all of our conflicts and fears, and he will take us home to be with him forever. So thus, by the power of his blood and the word of his testimony, we shall be made more than conquerors. And in the end, we will obtain the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the highest, the greatest, the best, the most excellent thing that I could pray for this church is that they would see you and know you that they would believe in your gospel, that they would know the love that surpasses knowledge. Lord, thank you for loving us when we are still a far way off, for rescuing us. Lord, for holding us in your hands 
and promising to never let us go and for working all things in creation for our good and for your glory. We recognize, Father, that we walk and live in your world and in your hands. Would you stay with us and keep us in your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this hymn together.